The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today I am delighted to welcome Dr. Janet Poppendick, who is a professor of sociology at Hunter College at the City of New York. She's also an author of several books. You may remember Sweet Charity, Emergency Food, and the End of Entitlement. And her latest title, which is what brings her here today, is Free for All, Fixing School Food in America. Jan, welcome. I'm glad to be here. I'm delighted. I picked this book up and had a hard time putting it down. It's extremely conversational. It truly is beautifully written. And it's fascinating to understand the history of something we all know, and whether we're familiar with it from our own past or whether we have children who have gone through the system, school lunch. What was it that got you interested in this topic? You know... Many, many years ago, I took a break from working on my doctoral dissertation to do some advocacy work. I served as the interim director of something called the National School Breakfast Campaign, which was a project of the Food Research and Action Center. That that was way back in the early 1970s, but it stayed with me, my encounter with school food. I think that experience did, did two things, three things, that really have shaped my professional career, one was that it let me see what an enormous difference programs like school food, in this case school breakfast, could make in the lives of hungry children. So I came away, you know, sort of perpetually motivated to work to make these programs better and to help them reach more of the children in need. But the second thing it did was raise my consciousness about the problems that are associated with the three-tier eligibility. We have free meals for children who come from families with incomes below 130% of the federal poverty line, and we have uh, reduced-price meals, which are typically a 40-cent lunch or a 30-cent breakfast for children who come from families with incomes below 185% of the poverty line. And then we have what we call full-price meals, although, in fact, they, they're not full-price. They, too, are subsidized by the federal government. And back when I was working on the school breakfast campaign, I became very aware of what an enormous administrative burden this was for schools and how it created almost a hostility to school food programs among some principals and superintendents. So that that was the second thing about my adventure with the Food Research and Action Center. And the third thing that was an enduring effect for me was a recognition that advocacy works. I I had an opportunity to see policy changes made that made school food better and made it more available to to children in need. So that's kind of in in my long-ago past, actually before I ever started teaching at Hunter, and I've taught at Hunter for... 34 years, but when childhood obesity began making headlines, I thought, well, now maybe is the time that we could take a whole new look at school food and see if we can't do a better job with it. Yeah, you know, I remember from my own 
my own experience at school, there were no soft drink machines. It was the school lunch or nothing. And it was a pretty good meal. I mean, there were a couple of items that weren't so great. But with my own children going through schools, I've watched, really, I, I can only describe it as school lunch deteriorating. And I wonder if you could describe a little bit about how school lunch originally came to be, because I love the fact that you've brought history into this. How did we get school lunch? And then how did it turn into what it is today? Okay. Both good questions. Um, The roots of federal participation in school lunch go back to the Great Depression. And the reason I put it that way is that we've actually had some school lunch programs in this country since a little before the turn of the last century. When education was made compulsory so that children had to go to school, that brought into the schools a lot of very, very poor kids, children who had, before the compulsory education laws, been working in mines, on farms, um, often in in factories or in peace work, homework in the in the lofts. And those were the poorest children in the nation, and those were the children who showed up for school after compulsory school attendance laws began to be enforced. And so a number of communities began school food programs, school lunch programs, because these kids were just too hungry to learn. And that kind of eased along. There was a movement called the School Hygiene Movement that was focusing more on the quality of food, um, the nutrition quality, but also cleanliness. Um, When schools had no food service, no cafeteria, Children were buying food at lunchtime from street vendors. The custodians in schools often sold food to children. And there was a lot of concern about the healthfulness and safety of that food. So in the early part of the 20th century, these two concerns, the hunger of very poor children and the health and hygiene of children who had money to spend on food, came together in many large cities began school food programs. But this was totally not the business of the federal government until the Great Depression. And what happened in the Great Depression is that the country had enormous agricultural surpluses. And the federal government got involved in removing those surpluses from the market in order to support prices. And then they had to find something to do with them. And one of the things they found to do with them that wouldn't undermine the market they were trying to support was to donate them to nonprofit school lunch programs. And so that kind of bumped along for the from 1935 or so through the rest of the depression. And then as the war clouds were on the horizon as World War II was approaching, the Department of Agriculture became very worried that the war might interfere with the export of American farm products. So they thought we might have even more surpluses, and they hired agents to work in every state to expand the the uh, school lunch program. And then, of course, the exact opposite happened. In fact, the market for American farm products became enormous, and there were no more surpluses, and in fact, the country was confronting uh, rationing. And that changed the, the context for school food, but the Folks in the know in the agricultural community really wanted to make sure that there would be a school food program after the war because the experience at the end of World War I was an experience of markets disappearing overnight and surpluses 
piling up and really in many ways at the roots of the Great Depression. So in order to avoid setting that situation up again, they changed the school food program from the donation of surpluses to a cash reimbursement basis. And this went on all through World War II and at the very end of the war, well, 1946, actually, after the war, Congress put the school food program on a permanent basis by passing what we now call the Richard Russell Russell National School Lunch Act, very much associated with notions of defense. They even had the concept of what they called defense nutrition, but the recognition that many young men who had been called up by the draft in World War II had not been able to serve for reasons related to malnutrition in childhood. So in the very defense or security conscious era at the end of World War II, it was seen as an investment in our national security. That's so interesting because, of course, now there is a similar concern about national security, only instead of our children being undernourished, they are overnourished so that they're not able to... The whole too fat to fight. Too fat to fight. Now, you asked me... How did we get from the the meals that you and I remember right. from our childhood? Um, and some, I, I sometimes think of it as a kind of school food nostalgia. Yeah. Um, I ran into quite a lot of it in my research among mm. people of a certain age. But what we remember are meals that were prepared fresh on site. Exactly. And that is a way of delivering school food that has become very rare, and uh, let me just summarize the the reasons. The initial pressures were financial. As participation in the program rose and the federal government was picking up the tab for those free and reduced-price meals, the costs rose quite dramatically in the latter half of the 1970s. And when Ronald Reagan came into office, he wanted to cut the expenditures for school food and did cut them quite dramatically. And he did it by cutting the subsidy for the so-called paid meals or the, the full-price meals. I mean, he, he made a number of, of cuts. He cut back on the, the donated commodities. He changed the income limits. But the biggest cut was in the the subsidy for the paid meals. And the impact was exactly what the Food Service Association predicted it would be many paying children dropped out of the program. So here you had a situation where school food service was confronted with a kind of triple whammy. They had fewer customers. They were getting a smaller subsidy for the free and reduced price meals. And at the same time, school systems were undermounting pressure to have the food service break even because school systems were also feeling a series of federal cuts and just the the situation in the economy. So the financial pressure led food service to do what virtually any business would do, which was to cut labor costs, and they did that by moving from fresh preparation on site to bulk convenience food, which was beginning to be sort of a major player in restaurants, in hospitals, in, in food service in general. So... On the one hand, they they cut the labor costs and eliminated jobs, which is really kind of a tragedy from my point of view because those are jobs, working in school food service, jobs that are very compatible with child rearing and particularly a good choice for a single parent trying to be both breadwinner and nurturer at the same time. They're jobs on the school calendar and on the school day schedule. So I really think it was short-sighted. 
to contract school food by eliminating the cooking. But when they did that, then the kitchens deteriorated. You know, old equipment wasn't replaced when it ran out of steam. And so when very recently there's been a new interest in fresh preparation on site, many schools found that they didn't have a kitchen fully equipped to do that. They had replaced the old stove with a convection oven, which is fine for heating up defrost and reheat entrees, um, but does not work as well for for preparing fresh food. Mm. You know, it's so interesting to hear you describe the rationale for cutting the budget like this, because I'm thinking to myself, they're not doing full-cost accounting. Yes. Yeah, and say that that's really a good way to put it. There are all kinds of costs that are externalized, and including, of course, the enormous health implications of switching to when they switched to bulk convenience food, it drove the menu in the direction of what I think of as fast food clones. Absolutely, you know, chicken nuggets and chicken mm-hmm. patties and uh, lots of burgers and lots of pizza, and some of those things belong in school lunch. Any of them belong in there occasionally. But a steady diet of that kind of food is not going to teach our children healthy eating and basically doesn't rely enough on plant-based foods to to promote optimal health. Exactly. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Janet Poppendick. She's a professor of sociology at Hunter College in the city of New York, City University of New York. And she's also, I didn't mention this in the beginning of the show, but she's also on the board of directors for World Hunger Year, which is a marvelous organization that is looking at hunger, issues of hunger uh, throughout the world. Dr. Poppendick is also the author of a book that you probably have heard of, Sweet Charity, Emergency Food and the End of Entitlement. But the book we're talking about today is her latest book. It's called Free for All, Fixing School Food in America. That's a fascinating conversation about the history of school food, where we were then, where we are now, and where to go to change what many of us perceive as being unfit food for most. I have to ask you, Jan, Your book is rich with examples of schools that have made changes on an individual basis. And you're you're very right to point out that we're not going to solve the problem one school at a time. We really do need national policies. But what the one school examples do give us are proof that a lot of the things that we say why we can't fix school food, we actually can, such as, well, you know, kids aren't going to eat that kind of food, like vegetables. Right. And there are a lot of sort of disabling myths out there. And kids won't eat vegetables is is maybe the most pernicious because, of course, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't expose them to vegetables, then by the time they encounter them, they are less likely to, to want to try them. And if you expose them to vegetables that have been overcooked and prepared in a way that's not attractive, and if you basically don't expect them to eat them, Kids are very responsive to adult expectations. So there are schools all across the country that have done wonderful things with salad bars. turns out that not only will kids eat vegetables, they will eat them raw. (laughs) They are especially likely to be willing to try new foods if they've had a hand in growing them. You know, if they've visited on a farm where they were being grown, if they've planted them in the school garden. Not that school gardens are typically able to supply cafeterias. You know, we're feeding children 7 billion meals a year through the school lunch and breakfast programs in the United States. 
school gardens are nowhere near uh, up to the task. But when children have had the experience with growing a plant from from a seed or from a seedling and watching it grow and then tasting the the fruit or vegetable when it's ripe and fresh, then they're much more likely to be willing to try it again in the cafeteria. And you bring up two wonderful examples of this. One, of course, being Life Lab, the garden-based curriculum that was developed at the University of California in Santa Cruz. And you also mention a wonderful and dear friend of mine, Emily Jackson, who's in North Carolina, with working with the Appalachian Sustainability Group there. And all of the experiences are exactly what you describe in that when the child has the opportunity to see the magic of growing the food and to become so involved in it, of course they want to eat it. Right, and I think many of us have had that experience with our own children. With When I was a child, we planted pumpkins, and, you know, it was just a, a joy to to watch the the plant develop, and indeed I was willing to try some things made with pumpkins. How can we replicate those success stories on a national basis? Well, one piece of good news is that just today, the day that we're taping this interview, Congress has passed the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act, and the president will undoubtedly sign it because his wife has been campaigning very actively for for its passage. And that provides more money for farm-to-cafeteria than we've had in any previous legislation. So there now is a fund of resources for startup of farm-to-cafeteria programs. And there are other resources in that bill that will help schools that want to do innovative things with their curricula. I became very much a fan of cooking in the schools, of of programs that engage children in cooking in the classroom because I saw transformations take place in children's attitudes when they had a chance, in a a way you could say, to play with the food for a while. That's right. So in terms of replication, now is the time. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, I have felt and have argued that the real solution to the problems with our school food program lies in moving to a universal free approach, similar to what they have in Sweden. I was in Sweden to take a look at this, and I have to tell you, it was lunchtime, and everybody went to the dining hall, and they filled their plates, and they went and ate. There was no cashier. There was no cash. There was nobody flaunting being able to afford what others couldn't. There were no competitive foods. What was served for lunch that day was what was available. There were some choices for students, but there were no unhealthy snacks being offered to compete with the the main meal or to reduce children's appetite for the healthy food that they were served. I think we need to get out of the bind we're in now where we are selling food to children because children are the targets of massive advertising. And it's not advertising for broccoli and carrots. It's advertising for the nation's least healthy foods. So children come to school with preferences that have been shaped by literally billions of dollars of food-specific advertising aimed at children. And food service is in a, a situation of feeling like they have to what's the word I want? I don't want to say pander to children's taste, but that they have to serve 
sort of kid-friendly foods, Mm -hmm. which very often turn out to be clones of these fast foods uh, that are being so heavily advertised. And so if we want to transform the, the menu and move in the direction of more fresh, whole food, more locally procured food or regionally procured food, more involvement of the region's farmers in supplying foods for our schools, I believe that that's linked to changing the way that we pay for school food. Now, you heard me talk when I was recalling my days with the National School Breakfast Campaign to say this has been my agenda for a long while. I think that children are so sensitive to distinctions and to feeling included or excluded. I think it's an enormous mistake to set up that kind of distinctions in in the lunchroom or the the breakfast room. So I would be in favor of getting rid of the three-tier eligibility system even if they weren't related to better quality food, fresher food. But I truly believe that it is, that it's the key to both getting rid of the stigma that allows more children to participate, which then makes it make more sense to integrate the program with the curriculum. You know, if everybody's eating school lunch and that's the norm, then it's a lot easier to to work it into the school day. So we've got issues of stigma. We've also got issues of food quality. And everything that you're describing is just lovely, and I'm sure you've heard this, because I've heard it when I try to talk about the ideal school lunch. But the answer is always, well, that's very nice, but how are we going to pay for it? Well, (laughs) you raised the issue of full-cost accounting. Right. And I do not think that tinkering at the edges is going to have a massive impact on our health costs. If it's the best you can do to take the really high-fat, high-sugar, high-salt snacks out of the vending machine and put in lower-sugar, lower-salt, lower-fat snacks, it's probably a change worth making, but I don't think it's going to show major impact on future health care costs. I think if we want that, and, you know, we pretty much all make the argument that that we need to improve school food not only for the health of our children but also for the health of our future bottom line, why then I think we're going to have to do a more profound overhaul. So I think we need to do that full-cost accounting. I know this is not the month to be saying there's plenty of money, but if Congress can be even considering extending those tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans, then they can find the money to do school food right. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Jan, we have a few minutes left, and I want to make sure that I leave the door open for you to address issues in this book that I didn't touch on. In general, I think we've covered a lot of the highlights. Let me let me say two things that, that might put it in a little more context for your readers. One is there is a chapter called Local Heroes that looks at those highly successful efforts to improve the quality of school food, and also at efforts to make the meals more available to the children who need them most. But one of the points of my Local Heroes chapter is that you shouldn't really have to be a saint or a superwoman to to serve good food to children who need it in our schools. We do need to address the structural constraints. Reforms that require truly heroic effort are usually very difficult to sustain. So that's that's kind of one one of those points. 
The other thing I guess I'd like to say is I'd like to go back to the question you asked me about how did it get this way mm-hmm. and remind your listeners of the, the issue of liability because that's another issue in our society. And, you know, we've just had legislation pass the Senate this week on food safety. But those two concerns, food safety and liability, are intimately linked in school food programs so that many, many places that I visited had stopped cooking meat on the premises because the liability rests with the manufacturer and the courts have determined that whoever cooks the meat is the manufacturer. So schools that that do have the equipment and had been, you know, cooking their burgers from scratch are now using pre-cooked, frozen, defrosted, and, you know, it loses appeal (laughs) in the process. So I think we need to step back from the system. The one other element that you can almost never talk about school food without talking about is the enormous administrative complexity of operating the free, reduced price, full price system the way we do it now. You know, I've talked about getting rid of that because I want to get rid of the stigma and because I think it would open the door to meals as a fully integrated part of the school day. But there's another reason to move beyond the three-tier system, and that's that it's very expensive. It costs a lot of money for us to to decide who gets to eat free and who has to pay a reduced price and who needs to pay the so-called full price. That's an and point. that's money that could be better spent on education because a lot of the cost is actually incurred by the, the school system rather than the lunch program per se, but the other half of it is incurred by the lunch program and it could be better spent on food. Jen, this has been a fascinating discussion. I want to thank you very much for putting this all into this book. For anyone who cares about school food, for anyone who cares about children and really our future, ending the the problem with hunger, especially as it impacts education and our future society, this is the book to read. We've been speaking with Dr. Janet Poppendick. She is a professor of sociology at Hunter College at the City University of New York, and she is based in New York City. She's on the board of directors of the World Hunger Year, and she is also the author of Sweet Charity, Emergency Food and the End of Entitlement. This book, Free for All, Fixing School Food in America, is a must-read. It is a dream for what school lunch could be, how to get there, and it's at the heart of the school food revolution. Jan, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for having me. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and in closing, remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri.